This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of men. You are the Renaissance. Greetings, American Psychological Association. My name is Sean Smith. I'm a clinical psychologist in Denver, Colorado. I've spoken to you before. You might remember my critique of your guidelines for working with boys and men. Incidentally, you never responded to my invitation to discuss those guidelines. I'm not going to lie, that hurt. But I can't stay mad at you, APA. You're so darn cute when you play hard to get. So today I'm going to take a different approach. I'm not going to yell at you about methodology or challenge you to a debate. I'm going to be nice for the most part and see if we can find some common ground about better serving our clients. So let's get down to business. Our profession has been consumed by a dogmatic ideology and is creating serious ethical problems out here on the front lines. You, the leadership of the APA, are in a unique position to get our profession back on track, and today I'm hoping to persuade at least some of you to try. This problem of ideology in our profession is not new. I was speaking up about it a decade ago when I saw social psychologists producing passive-aggressive, low-rent studies claiming that conservatives are mentally inferior to liberals. Those papers were really just editorials masquerading as research, and they were a symptom of a much larger problem that plenty of people were already aware of. For example, this 2012 study uncovered open hostility against conservatives within our own ranks. Back then, conservative psychologists, both of them, were afraid to reveal their political leanings because doing so might harm their careers, and they were right to be anxious. Their liberal colleagues openly admitted that they would discriminate against them because of their political beliefs. In fact, the more liberal the respondents were, the more enthusiastically they said they would mistreat their conservative colleagues. That was a simpler time. Open hostility was something psychologists merely inflicted on each other. Just good clean fun in the halls of academia. Well, that was then, and this is now. This political ideology, with all its malevolence toward those who don't toe the line, has leaked into the clinical world like the contents of a busted sewer line. The ideology has grown. It has mutated into a more aggressive strain, and it's harming people. We all know which set of ideas I'm referring to. I'm talking about progressivism, social justice theory, those beliefs that are based in intersectionalism and critical theory and that view the world through the lens of power structures and identity politics. Some of the APA's recent publications make it clear that at least some of you enthusiastically endorse this ideology and its political aims. And for my part, I've made it clear that I view this ideology as intolerant and destructive. So we disagree, but I'd like to set that aside. My hope is simply to convince you that our profession shouldn't be dominated by any political ideology because when we allow that, we create winners and losers among the people we serve. Hello, my name is Will Spencer and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. One of my favorite topics to discuss with men is the subject of psychotherapy. It's a process I've benefited greatly from. In fact, along with men's groups and ayahuasca, it's been one of the most powerful tools I've used to create my transformation. But one of the things I've noticed about the profession today is that it sometimes has a blind spot when it comes to men and women. It can often have a bias towards the feminine due to its emphasis on the healing of emotional trauma. And in that regard, the bias makes some sense. Nonetheless, the bias is real, as it is for many healing professions. 
so you can imagine that once I entered the world of masculine personal development, I was thrilled to discover a psychotherapist who's not only aware of the bias, but who, as you can hear, vocally pushes back against it. His name is Dr. Sean T. Smith, and he's a clinical psychologist, men's coach, author, and public speaker in Denver, Colorado. I first heard him speak in one of his talks for the 21 convention. His speech was entitled, How to Keep the Wrong Women Out of Your Life, and right now it's at almost 400,000 views on YouTube. To me, that's shocking that so many men don't know how to recognize a woman who'll be dangerous or even destructive to their lives, but sadly, I know firsthand that it's all too necessary a discussion to have in our increasingly feminized society. But Sean doesn't stop there. He's also bravely speaking up against the politics that are spreading through the psychotherapeutic profession by the American Psychological Association. It takes real courage to speak up against powerful institutions today. I wish more men did it. And for that reason, I knew I had to have Sean on the show. In our conversation, we discussed the manosphere, or as I call it, the renaissance of men, and how Sean found his way into the rich world of masculine personal development. The power of shame, and how it can help us in our social interactions and hurt us when it goes too far. The difference between being men living in service to an ideal versus men living in servitude to an ideology. The dangerous woke politics spreading through the APA and how it could be leading to an unchecked disaster down the line. And finally, Sean's background growing up with a father who owned a truck stop bar and how his childhood observations of human interactions helped propel him towards a career in psychology. I generally try to conduct my podcast in an interview style where I do minimal talking and lots of listening, but this turned out to be the most conversational podcast yet. And that makes sense because Sean is a listener too. So I hope you enjoy this episode with two men finding their way around some of their favorite and most familiar subjects. And I'm excited to introduce my next guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, Dr. Sean T. Smith. Sean, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, well, thanks for having me. You know, I was really excited to have this conversation with you because of all the voices in the manosphere or in the Renaissance of Men, as I call it. I think yours is one of the most important and especially to me, one of the most interesting because there are very few, and I think this is surprising, there are very few psychotherapists in this particular movement, men who have a deep familiarity with men's psyches. And I think there needs to be more room for that. I like that phrase, renaissance of men. I like that better than manosphere because it has really taken on kind of a tainted meaning lately, hasn't it? It has. It has. And I think the manosphere, I, I don't like the etymology of the word, first of all. I think it's sort of this internet-y neologism, which I'm not a fan of. But the manosphere is a, is a place, I, ideally, if we strip it of all, the, of all the meaning that's been assigned to it. The manosphere is a place, sort of this place where we all gather. But I view the Renaissance of Men as a process, as a process that we're living through that's actually about 40 years old. Uh, going back to Warren Farrell and the mythopoetic men's movement and a lot of the work that Robert Bly did. So that sort of kicked off what I see as the Renaissance. And now we're on the leading edge of the wave of it. Well, yeah. And it's, um, manosphere is such an obscure term. Like I, I consult with other psychologists just because that's part of what you do with, with when you're a psychologist and you meet with your colleagues once in a while and you discuss cases and so forth. And I mentioned manosphere to a group of psychologists one time and none of them had heard of it. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a little world that's just separated off from everything else. And I think that's really unfortunate. I agree. And uh, I did some research a few months back trying to get a survey of American men of all ages to see what sort of familiarity they had with different names in this space. 
So I sent out uh, to a survey about 100 men, a list of names, including Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and Robert Bly and the Mankind Project and Jack Donovan, as many names as I could think of. And I was shocked because on that list, I included uh, Tanner Guzzi, who's a friend of mine, a great guy. And out of 100 men, like three guys had heard of his name just from the, the mainstream sort of population, just the general population. But to someone like me looking at someone like Tanner Guzzi, that guy's had this enormous impact. So it's sort of like a, a, a paradox of perspectives, like from the larger perspective of the world of men out there, there's this wonderful party that's going on. But from inside the party, it seems so much larger and it's kind of hard to reconcile those two things. Yeah, it really is. It's sort of like American politics are, are what we get obsessed with as Americans, but it's such a small piece of what everyone else in the world is dealing with. All right. Yeah, I've spent some time overseas, and and I think uh, the America is a one-way exporting culture. We don't really import <laughs> yes. a lot of news, you know what I mean? Yeah, but we, we do see ourselves as the center of the universe, and I think that in the manosphere, it's kind of easy to get drawn into that, too, where you think that it's it is an important place and, and all of the factions in it are really important, but it, it's such a, it's such a small bubble, I think. Oh, I agree. And I, I think part of the goal of the Renaissance of men is to remove that bubbly kind of aspect and make it appealing to a wider subset of men that I think need to hear about this because certainly my own journey over the past, I guess, eight years, almost eight years has been to discover this world of men and to allow myself to be transformed by it, coming out of some pretty significant tragedies in my life with my family. And so coming into this world and navigating through it has been this enormously transformative process. So I've sort of lived what's possible on the journey through it. And so I'm excited to share that with other men. And I discovered that it's obviously so much bigger than just this era that I'm living through and that it's been going on for such a long time. Yeah, it really has. You know, back in the 80s, I guess, when, when, when was Robert Bly a big name? Uh, he wrote Iron John in the uh, right. in, in the early 90s, but that was based on a series okay. of essays that he wrote. I think it was in the early to mid 80s, was, and then he turned it into a book later. And that actually made a, a little bit of a splash in the rest of the world. And then this renaissance of men sort of receded, it seems like. Well, it went underground. It came under fire. Like there were, of course, lots of opinion pieces. There were many books that were published around Iron John. Uh, there was Sam Keen, Fire in the Belly, uh, and a number of others. And uh, you started to have the Mankind Project, which is a significant part of my story. And so you started to have this uh, men's work out in the world where you started to get the caricature of the men dancing around naked around a bonfire and beating drums. And that was a that image, um, which has archetypal power, was sort of broadcast, you know, writ large into the mainstream media in some ways and ridiculed. And so everything went underground the way that I see it. Everything went underground into the pickup movement, um, which was the beginning of the manosphere as we know it today is how I see it. Yeah. Seems like a, seems like a reasonable history of things. <laughs> yes. As, as I've sort of uh, pieced it together from, from sources. Well, how did you find your way into the manosphere or the Renaissance of men? Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind either term. I think the manosphere is shorter, but I'm, yeah. How did I find my way in? I don't, I don't know. I guess I've always sort of kept my ear to the ground of what's going on online. And, and there are all these fascinating voices out there. And I think probably MGTOW, you know, that if that's a, a little bubble within the bubble of the manosphere, they probably caught my attention first. And I started, you know, I got really curious about them. And I'm married for 21 years and it's going great. So I, I'm not in you know, the furthest thing right. from a MGTOW. But, and even within MGTOWs, there's, there's, all, it doesn't mean the same thing to any two men, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, 
but in but in a you know like some guys will write off women entirely and some men will will date around and call themselves MGTOW but whatever regardless I started looking and listening to them and hearing what they had to say and noticing that these guys have some real legitimate complaints I you know obviously doesn't suit my worldview to write off women entirely but their concerns about family court and about custody of children and about kangaroo courts on campus they've got honest to God, legitimate complaints. And as I started thinking about it, their point of view, I, I, and I've said this publicly before, I don't know that I can really recommend marriage to young guys these days, unless you, you are on a mission to have a family. Mm -hmm. If you really want to have a family and children, then sure marriage is, is probably the way to go because we know that children do best when they're in a family. And so, um, you, you know, we, we can't throw out the family component if you want to have a family and, and reproduce and that's a part of your worldview. But if that's not really what you're after, marriage is so risky for guys these days. So anyway, I, I started noticing that they've got a real point. At the same time, how do you write off the opposite sex entirely? It's not practical for the species. And so I really started some wrestling with some of those ideas. And then that drew me to other parts of the manosphere or the renaissance of men or whatever we want to call it. Mm. And actually got you know, fairly involved with some conversations here and there. Like I've gone to the 21 convention a couple of times and um, yeah, done some things like that. Yeah. I was listening to your, uh, how to invite the right women into your life talk from the 21 convention. Cause I, Anthony Johnson, I went to 21 convention back in October and uh, met a bunch of the guys there and had a great time. Anthony Johnson reposted that talk of yours, which I listened to a second time and it continues to bear incredible fruit. It's an, it's an amazing talk where you reiterate that notion, like you got to be real careful about the women you bring into your life in different ways. And I think you related the story of your friend, Mike, with the woman who said, I know who I'm, how I'm going to die. Yeah, that story, it, it, I'll, I'll recap it real quick. He yeah. was getting married and there's a second marriage and this marriage was becoming a really big affair. Like it was up in the mountains and people were taking trips from across the country to come to this marriage and so forth. And uh, it was really taking on steam. And about a week out from the marriage, Mike and his fiance went to a coffee shop just to get away from all of this commotion for a minute on a Sunday morning. And that's when she dropped the line on him. I, I know how I'm going to die. And he said, well, how are you going to die? And she said, well, you're going to kill me. What was going on with her is that her anxiety about a certain about him having guns had, had run away with her, right? Mm. And so rather than being able to see that that was her anxiety running away with her, that became her reality and for, for a few days, that this was actually how things are. It's not quite delusional, but clearly in the grips of anxiety and not being able to manage it very well. And he noticed that this isn't the first time it had happened with her, that she kind of lost touch with reality on several occasions before. And here it was you know, creating this, this really serious point of contention between them. And so he called off the marriage, which mm -hmm. is a really tough thing to do at the last minute. It's, it's a gutsy thing to do. And thank God he did it. It worked out best for both of them. Yeah, that, so that was the story of Mike. I can imagine sitting there at a coffee shop next to my girlfriend or fiance, I suppose at that point, and her saying that you're going to kill me. And wow, <laughs> what, a, what a thing to hear. And, and the main message of that talk is I'm not down on marriage. I'm not down on women. I, you know, I think women are amazing mm -hmm. creatures. A guy has to be particular about who he allows into his world. And I don't think that men get enough messaging about what makes for a good relationship? What are the sort of the bare minimum qualities that another human being should have if they're going to coexist with you? And there are wonderful people out there, but if you don't have the role models in your life and you don't have the training and you don't know what to look for, then you're set up to make some pretty bad mistakes.
Oh, for sure. This is something that I had to learn the hard way. Maybe not in the same way as someone like Mike did from the way that you describe him. But, you know, I was definitely not taught how to be discerning in my choice of women. I was definitely uh, given the messaging that uh, women are these holy and, and saint-like kind of creatures who should not be gainsaid or questioned or or anything like that. So I was sort of given this idea that I'm designed to be subservient to women. And so therefore, I don't get to really have beyond a bare minimum of standards. So do you do you mind if I ask what, what factors gave you that message to where you came into adulthood with that view of yourself? I have been trying to find the origin of those ideas. I think some of it is rooted in uh, gender feminism and how it was interpreted into my household growing up, although I'm trying to find specific memories of when that would have been the case. Some of it definitely came from living in San Francisco for about 20 years. I think that was a big part of the culture that began to develop there. I think some of it is probably rooted in a lot of the spiritual traditions, the new age spiritual traditions that I was a part of, that men are toxic and destructive and women are goddesses and, and those sort of ideas. And I think some of it probably also had to do, probably a lot of it had to do with watching my parents interact and the, the way my father behaved to my mother and the way my mother behaved to my father and the way my mother treated me. I'm sure that has a lot to do with it, but I'm still trying to unwind the actual, I guess you might say, origins of it. Yeah, my sense is that that's the story for a lot of guys is that we come into adulthood with this notion, like you said, that we are subservient to women, to women and it's hard to point to one particular thing that leaves us with that impression. And it was reinforced as I, as I went forward into the world, finding that these ideas were reinforced made it extremely difficult to, to unwind them. And I, it actually took me leaving the United States to begin to see them. Where did you go and, and how did you get enlightenment elsewhere? <laughs> I went down to, uh, to South America. I sort of initiated my dream of backpacking around the world, which is its own story that sort of feeds into all this. But I left in March of 2016 and I went down to South America and I went to Colombia, Medellin, Colombia. And in South America, they have very different expectations around men and women. They have what we might understand as more traditional gender roles, at least in courtship. I, I couldn't really say how things look in terms of marriage and family, but in the courtship realm, as I began going out on dates, I was like averting my eyes and being very polite. And, you know, so I wasn't the traditional rapey, patriarchal, toxic male. And the women that I met were like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? Like, be a man. Like, Stop being such a pussy. Come on. And I was like, wait, what? And it was really difficult for me, uh, for me at first to kind of encounter that and begin to see the ways that I had been fed all this propaganda about how men and women are supposed to be when they can be completely different ways in a completely different culture. And that I had to reconcile that within myself and, and find a sense of find a sense of power and sexuality that I uh, hadn't had before. That's an interesting story. So, yeah, I wish more guys would do that. And it sounds like you were walking around feeling ashamed when the way you just described it, it sounded like you were ashamed of masculinity, walking around averting eye contact and so forth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very ashamed. Very ashamed of myself. Very ashamed of masculinity. Very ashamed of my own sexuality. So it was my own healing journey to purge that uh, guilt and shame from my system with the aid of, uh, as I was in South America, I also participated in several ayahuasca plant medicine ceremonies. And that was the, uh, the center of uh, my intention. I went for a 12-day workshop at this place called the Temple of the Way of Light. And actually, my last podcast episode was with one of the facilitators down there. And I went into that workshop, which is seven ceremonies in 12 days, with the intention I wanted to uh, improve my ability to relate to women. Uh, I didn't know exactly what I was asking for or what that meant, but I came to see over the course of my time there that there was a deep root of shame within me um, that I needed to purge in all of its various ways. And that was its own process. 
Yeah, shame is is such a well, shame shame is a really interesting thing. There's a paper that came out recently that talks about the function of shame and how if you believe in evolutionary psychology that we have these evolved adaptations that help us stay connected to other human beings because we're pack animals and that shame and pride are these predictive functions that we have in our mind where we can think forward on th- something that we're about to do and if we get a sense of shame about what it is about it th- then what we're doing is we're we're predicting that if I do this thing it's going to lower my value among my my tribe or my you know, my associates or whatever. So I'm not going to do that. And so the, the function of shame is to close down your behavior. And that's what you see when somebody acts ashamed is they're averting their high contact. They're really closing in their behavior. They're acting small. And so there's the, the predictive aspect of shame. And then there's the retroactive aspect of shame, where if you've done something where you screwed up, then you, you give these public displays of shame, like averting eye contact and apologizing and so forth, so that you're telling other people, hey, I realize I screwed up and I won't do it again. And so it's a really incredibly useful tool for staying connected to other human beings. But when you have this, and this is me talking now, not, not in the paper, when you get this pervasive sense of shame, like that I'm, I'm just screwed up because I exist, I'm screwed up because I'm a man, then what you're doing is you're walking through the world hunched over with your with your eyes downcast and and everybody else is going to respond to you as if you have done something wrong because that's what they see you behaving as and and we are predisposed to understand the signs the, the signals of shame and pride and so you're walking around saying well I'm ashamed and everyone else is responding to you as if well I guess you should be ashamed because you're acting ashamed and then it just becomes this this spiral where the more ashamed you behave, the more ashamed you are, essentially. I've observed that it's actually worse than that in some ways, because there's two ways that someone can respond to an ashamed person. There's the average good person way, which someone could respond to an ashamed person, which is to treat them as if there's something they should be ashamed to, just sort of out of some level of instinct. But then there are people that can use that shame response and exploit it in a person. And I think that's where it becomes really dangerous as you see that someone has in, internally weakened from some sort of shame response. And if you're of a sort of malicious mindset, you can take advantage of that. And I see, I do see a lot of that, not, not a lot of it, but I do see some of that, of, of the way that men take advantage of each other, women take advantage of men who are in this weakened position, uh, exploiting this inner shame rather than helping them heal it. Yeah. And, and modern feminism, third wave feminism, is, it, it seems to be almost entirely shame based, mm-hmm. meaning that if you try to shame someone else, you are essentially trying to get them to constrain their own behavior. And it seems like that's what feminism has essentially evolved into, which is, you know, you guys, you just need to shut up. You need to get small, shut up, do what we tell you. And, you know, just, just sit over there and suck your thumb. And of course, this, these are the qualities that women find kind of repulsive in men, guy who walks around being small and, and not asserting his values and so forth. And so we have this movement out there that is just constantly telling men, you screwed up, you messed up, you need to pay for your mistakes, you need to be ashamed. And then the women who aren't buying into that horrendous ideology are then left with a bunch of guys that are walking around with their, with their heads down low. And it's terrible. That's not what they're looking for. Absolutely. It, it doesn't work for either men or women. And in case anyone's listening is tempted to say that these 
phenomena of women and cultural shaming men doesn't exist, I just encourage you to watch the recent Star Wars series with what they did to Luke Skywalker, where he's a sort of shame monkey hiding and drinking from this giant green alien, Jean-Luc Picard and Logan in, um, in Moana with the way that Moana constantly shames Maui. These memes are out there. And Jonathan Peugeot on YouTube does an excellent video about propaganda and culture that is designed to directly shame not just men, but masculine men. So this is very real. And I don't know that this really serves men. And it serves, as you say, it doesn't serve women either. They're left with a bunch of bad options. You know, the feminist prescription for masculinity is a set of behaviors that are unattractive to women, basically. You're meek, you're small, you're apologetic. It's a little bit nauseating when you look at it from the sexual selection point of view, what feminism is trying to do to men and that men allow feminism to do that to us because we can't, they can't do a thing to us until we allow them to do it to us. You know, I don't want to be specific. I'm talking about third wave feminism here. There are obviously, you know, there've been some great aspects of feminism. There were some changes that needed to occur middle of the last century. Things started to kind of turn around and that's great. But now we're, I think what we're left with with feminism is the war has been won and to whatever extent there was a war, because men participated in it too. I mean, men obviously wanted, were advocating for equality too. But the war has been won. And so all the reasonable people have gone home from the war and they're living their lives and having a good time. And the only people still fighting the war are the fruitcakes who, <laughs> who cannot let go of the war. And so you have gender studies departments that are all about problematizing, which is what that means in their parlance is just finding problems in everything. Oh, yeah, the relentless assault of uh, critical theory on the foundations of Western civilization. And some, some I've read some compelling arguments that while we, meaning you and I, Sean, agree that, the, that feminism's earliest purpose was to remedy some equality in terms of legal status, social status, and political status, that we see that battle as being won. There are many people who say quite compellingly, like, actually, no, the, the beginning goal of feminism was to upend civilization in this way and to liberate women from the constraints of needing to bear children because the necessity of bearing the sole responsibility for giving birth keeps women penned into a particular range of life options and only by liberating them from the demand to facilitate the nuclear family only then can women truly be free that's a pretty shocking thing to hear that women's liberation needs to come at the expense of the propagation of civilization. But certainly we're seeing a lot of that in, in some of the discussions today, as I know that you're quite familiar with the gender feminist literature. Yeah, I, I've read quite a bit of it. It's it's fascinating stuff up to a point. And then it just yeah. gets so repetitive. It's not fascinating anymore. But you know, I, I am familiar with those beliefs that feminism from the beginning has always been about essentially destruction of society. And I know those voices were out there. I don't think that's what the average feminist next door was doing in oh, 1968. Absolutely I think not. they just, yeah. So yeah, there've always been crackpots. There always will be crackpots. They don't necessarily define the movement until everyone else goes away and only the crackpots remain trying to spread their poison. Right. And they, they seem to be propagating. And I think what's so dangerous about these ideas is the way that men like me have internalized them. And it's this actual, it's an actual process of of purging a real virus, a real mind virus from my system. I went through a lot to get rid of that. It's really, truly incredible. I was in therapy weekly for uh, for two years 
before I was able to leave and go traveling down to South America. I was in a men's group also every week with the therapist. He was facilitating the conversation every week for two years. And then I went to South America and then I had my own healing process of traveling. I mean, it, it took me quite literally like eight years, sorry, uh, yeah, seven years of active work to purge this. That's how deep it ran. And, yeah. uh, you know, they, they've, I don't know where this energy has come from to drive this into men, but it's really severe and it's very serious and very real. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure either. I've heard that, um, I've heard people say that feminism and its current incarnation is a giant shit test. And for those who don't know what a shit test is, this is essentially an integrity test. It's where you, where a woman typically in, in the common parlance will test a man to see if he has the metal to stand up for his values and be be someone that she can lean on. And I've heard that feminism is a giant societal level shit test to, to test how strong men are. I don't think it is. I think it's an ideology. It's an ideology like Marxism. It's an ideology mm -hmm. like Nazism that has just taken root. And uh, once an ideology takes root, it becomes like you say, a mind virus where people find reasons to believe it. And it, it really capitalizes on some cognitive quirks that people have to, to frame the world. And so I, I see it as a much, much bigger problem than just a giant shit test. Oh, absolutely. I don't think that there was anyone sitting around to design a, to design a societal shit test for men, but one way or another, it's serving that function. I know that you've said that in one of your talks that Evo Psych is sort of your religion. I, I don't know if you were, you were exaggerating or not, but I, I tend to fall more on the uh, religious and spiritual side of things. And I identify a lot of this in a mythological sense with going back to the fall in the biblical sense, where the first emotion that Adam and Eve experienced was shame. And it's mm -hmm. that it's that primal. They eat the apple, and the first thing they do is they realize that they're naked and they cover themselves. And so the the primal first emotion was not joy, but shame. And I see this mind virus as exploiting this backdoor hack into the human psyche of getting within our heads in all these different ways and exploiting the shame within us uh, because we all carry it and we all feel it. It's part of being human. And if we can't identify the source of the shame, if we if we don't know ourselves well enough to know where it comes from or to know that it's primal or archetypal in that way then we're liable to sort of assign the origins of that shame of something in our immediate environment. So for me, that happened to be, and it just shows up in all kinds of ways. But for me, it showed up like, oh, my, the source of my shame is in being a man. And I shouldn't be ashamed because men have done all these terrible things. And so, you know, the shame appeared to find some sort of legitimate justification, which of course didn't hold up to later scrutiny, but nonetheless, so the, the, the shame had the appearance of legitimate justification. So I, I carried it. And it wasn't until I went through a very long process of purging myself of that shame that I began to see the virus for what it was and how it had, I guess you'd say, entered my biopsychological system. Yeah, you know, I never used to really have much use for Jung and you know Carl Jung and the the archetypal way of thinking about things because I'm I'm a nuts and bolts clinician mm -hmm. like you come to me with a problem we're going to get you patched up and back on the road I used mm -hmm. to you know I started out working with anxiety disorders and got really pretty good at working on anxiety disorders it's very uh, it's fairly technique heavy meaning yeah you do you do a little bit of exploration but for the most part you stick with what you know works in terms of handling anxiety and then as I started transitioning more into working into couples over the years it was sort of the same thing where yeah, you, you do a little bit of delving into the personality. Obviously, you have to, but also there's a lot of nuts and bolts. Hey, let's, let's stop that behavior and let's replace it with this behavior. And, you know, again, got fairly successful at, at doing that. And so 
have never paid much attention to this archetypal way of thinking about things. But here in the last year or so, I really started to come around that, yeah, there are these common experiences, like what you're describing, the Adam Eve story, shame, when our ancestors were thinking about these things, they didn't have evolutionary psychology, they didn't have MRI imaging, they didn't have those sorts of things. But what they had was, hey, we're all going through this similar experience. And everyone that came through us, came before us, went through this similar experience. So maybe there's something here. And so I, I am starting to appreciate much more the idea of the collective unconscious. So this uh, set of understandings that we all share, perhaps as a, as a human species, a set of common experiences and, and, uh, and notions and ideas and symbols that we all draw from in our everyday and also shared experience. Yeah. So I think one of the challenges for men, it may be the single biggest existential challenge is to reject this shame that is being foisted upon us through culture, through the American Psychological Association yeah. with all of their, their, their nonsense about toxic masculinity and to be able to set it aside. And that's a tricky thing. You know, I have, as I mentioned, I worked a lot with anxiety disorders and, and one of the main principles of working with anxiety is that the more you try to suppress a thought, something that's coming from inside of you, the more prominent and important it becomes. Or like if I tell you not to think of monkeys, you're going to think of monkeys. If I tell you to work really, really hard at not thinking of monkeys, maybe you start jumping rope or singing or whatever to not think of monkeys, but you know why you're doing that, which means you're working really hard in the service of not thinking about monkeys. And so that's the trap that you can fall into with anxiety. And I think a, a similar trap is waiting for men here when they try to set aside that shame, I think the trick is to acknowledge that it's there and acknowledge that this is really deeply seated emotional stuff and you're not going to just purge yourself of it very easily, but you can add new things to it. Like you can go to another country and experience something different and get a new experience that now you have a little way of not arguing with your mind, but a little bit of counterbalance to what your mind is feeding you about how ashamed you should feel about the fact that you're a man. That's really interesting. The idea that you sort of, you take what you're given, what you're working with, and rather than trying to cut off a piece of yourself, you augment it with more pieces of yourself or more pieces of the world to give context around it. That's, that typically is how people get over anxieties. I, I don't know if the same recipe fits here with this question that we're talking about where men are constantly uh, constantly that's that's overstated but you know sort of incessantly by culture and by uh, formal bodies of authority that there's something wrong with them it's hard to escape it one way or another it's in culture it's being propagated through institutions like the american psychological association and when i listen to I think it's on YouTube, your open letter to the APA. That was very inspiring to me because at one point in time, I considered being a psychotherapist myself. In fact, I thought that was my uh, intended career path. And it wasn't until the summer when I realized uh, that there's enough work to do now that I thought about putting my interests into, into practice now rather than waiting three years, which perhaps I don't know that we have. But certainly as I, as I heard you discussing that with the, with the APA and so openly and uh, so vocally, that was very inspiring to me because I was surprised to find, but perhaps not all that surprised, to find that this, the same sort of ideology had made its way uh, into there as well. Yeah, the, the ideology... The feminist ideology and, and the woke agenda essentially is really finding its way into the clinic and not so much with people like me as private practitioners, because when you're a private practitioner, you're working with real people who have real jobs and real lives. And so there's not a lot of room for radical ideology um, of, of any stripe because people are just living their lives. But in the classroom and in training clinics, uh, 
And in, in any place where the American Psychological Association and, and the big governing body state associations like Colorado Psychological Association, same, same agenda, anywhere they have their fingers, like in prisons or any sort of a big organization where you have an encroachment of the bureaucracy of the APA and so forth, the woke agenda and particularly the feminist agenda is just, it, it's, it's hard to, I can't overstate how present it is mm. and how psychologists are throwing away clinical skills to advance a political agenda. And again, it's a very small group of psychologists who are doing this, but they're very influential. The American Psychological Association, for example, they control accreditation. Mm-hmm. So if you have a psychology training program and you want to bring students in and then train them up to be psychologists and then help them get their first internships or their first postdocs or their first jobs out of the real world, if you want to be taken seriously as a training program, you need to have APA accreditation because those employers and those postdocs and those internships are going to ask you, are you APA accredited? And because of that, the students are going to ask you, are you APA accredited? And so you have to be APA accredited to be taken seriously. And in order to be APA accredited, you really have to advance this agenda, this, this ideological agenda. It's not written in their rules, but I have seen programs, the program that I went through, went through an APA accreditation review, which they do every seven years, I think, five or seven years. And I saw my program go through this APA accreditation review and the ideological overtones, even back then, this was 20 years ago, it was stunning how ideology affected the outcome of that review. And I can't even imagine what it is now because now they have, the APA has gone so far as to formalize this ideology and things like their guidelines for working with boys and men, their guidelines for working with girls and women. And so it's a really dangerous time right now in psychology because it's, it's on the precipice of, our, of are we going to remain a clinically relevant piece of the medical world or are we just going to become an ideological mouthpiece and nothing more? And it, it seems like we're headed toward the latter position. At the end of your 21 convention talk, someone asked you about feminism and about your outlook on the psychological fields. Maybe they said psychotherapy in general. And you said that you felt time. I think this was maybe 2018. You said that you felt confident that the uh, ideological rot, you did not use those words, but um, was confined to the academic side and that the clinical side, as you said, was more dealing with everyday human beings and less susceptible and it sounds like maybe that's changed a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to lose my confidence in that. Oh, wow. Although when I, when I think about my colleagues, you know, they, they tend not to be ideologically driven because you can't stay in business that way. If people come in, they don't want to be preached at. They're looking for a solution to whatever they're dealing with. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not as confident as I was back then. That sounds like a real, a real tragedy, um, especially working in situations like prisons where you have perhaps some of the most needy Uh, psychological healing and and transformation and to be taking an ideology into that environment, which is liable to cause even more harm by more greatly dividing men from their inner essential nature or by certainly by preaching shame to them. You're not going to improve anyone's life. The the shame piece. Yeah. That, that shame piece is particularly dangerous because I think Jordan Peterson said something like, I'm not going to get it right, but it, it was something about, the most dangerous person in the world is the man who feels small. 
Mm. And that's a hundred percent true. You know, I was saying that long before I heard him say, it, but he said it more eloquently than I ever could that, that, you know, the person, the man that you should be the most afraid of is not the man who's confident and strong. It's the man who feels small and weak. And so if you're going to go into a prison and, and I know that this is happening because I have some prison connections still, because I used to work in a prison. If you're going to go into a prison and you're going to start preaching to men that there's something wrong with them on top of everything that they're coming in with. So a guy in prison, when he's cornered, his back against the wall, he's desperate. Um, he, he probably has a little bit of personality psychopathology, but not all, of, not all inmates do. And so you take a guy who's in that position and you beat him down a little further, and then you're going to send him out into society. Well, what do you think is going to happen mm-hmm. with that guy? You've just created, you've taken a dangerous person and made him 10% more dangerous. It's just idiotic. It's absolutely reprehensible. It is. And I I fully agree, especially because so many people, when they begin to feel powerless, especially if you're an adult male of of a certain type, you will act out in ways that seek to give you power. And I wonder, I don't have a clinical background, uh, but I wonder how many, how many men just taking from this point forward, if they're if they're in prison and they're in a state of powerlessness, and then they're made to feel ashamed, and then they're that they go out into the world with a feeling of powerlessness, but the inner self needs to assert some form of power. How many of them will recommit crimes, perhaps even with a more viciousness and a way of balancing the psyche, a, a counterproductive way of balancing the psyche, but of needing to reclaim power in some way? It's it's just it's setting it's setting things up for disaster, as I see it. It is. And it will never be measured. And this is one of the problems with the APA guidelines is that the outcomes of what they're telling young men about themselves, that you should be ashamed, oh, that, yeah. that you, you are broken, you're inherently flawed. The outcome of that will never be measured. And the outcome of telling inmates before you release them into the world that there's something fundamentally wrong with you because you're a toxic male, that'll never be measured. And not only are we giving the wrong lessons, but we're not giving the right treatment when people need treatment. So, you know, men, when they commit domestic violence, they will sometimes be compelled to go through these training programs. And I've heard mixed reviews. I've heard some, some guys say that the program they went through was really useful and helpful to them. But then I've heard other people say it was just an absolute waste of time and money. And the ones who say it's a waste of time and money are usually talking about what's called the Duluth model. And the Duluth mm-hmm. model is this model of domestic violence treatment that came out of, oh, uh, early 80s, late 70s. And it was a, a group of people in Minnesota who came up with this program and their, for domestic violence treatment. And the problem they solved wasn't how do we understand domestic violence and how do we break down whatever cycle is causing domestic violence. The problem they tried to solve was essentially what do we want to tell men so there's a bunch of radical feminists who said okay we've we're going to get these men cornered into a room because they're already in the the penal system so we already have access to them we have a captive audience what do we want to tell them that's the wrong question because what you want to tell them is not necessarily what's going to cause the problem and so you have this this ideologically based program that's what 50 60 years old now that is based entirely on opinion it's not, it wasn't based on any kind of empirical data or any kind of studies or any kind of methodology or orderly way of thinking about violence. It was just based on ideology. And so it's, it's basically a useless program. And what you could be teaching instead, if somebody is going through a program so that they don't commit domestic violence again, is you could be talking about 
the dynamics of violence and what do you contribute to it? What does the other person contribute to it? What are some specific skills we can put in place to help you cool off, walk away, think about it, come back, deal with the problem constructively? You know, all of that gets tossed out the window Mm -hmm. when you hand your curriculum over to ideology. Absolutely. And let's try to understand men's men's inner realities, their upbringing. This is how I would approach it. In complement to what you're saying is what happened in your childhood? What are you carrying? What sort of traumas and wounds and mistaken beliefs about yourself are you carrying? And how can we how can we help you see yourself more clearly for who you are in your story and help you reckon with the past and make something productively good out of it, as opposed to simply saying that you're just this violent oppressor, terrible being. But I see, unfortunately, way more at least in, in culture, and it sounds like also in this Duluth model and also in critical settings increasingly, way more of the accusing and way of more of the blaming rather than the seeing uh, men as unique beings who need their own form of care. And that seems to have gone completely out the window. Yeah, to whatever extent it, it ever was really there in the first place. <laughs> to whatever but, extent it was yeah. in the window. Yeah. Just to, to wrap up this little piece of the conversation, I guess, what hope is a person going to find to improve their life if they're told that they're fundamentally flawed? The only thing that that comes to mind is is religious faith, but unfortunately, yeah. I could have another conversation with perhaps you know Pastor Michael Foster. He's also just spoken at the Twenty One Convention. Uh, we could have another conversation about how religious faith, particularly in Christianity, is failing men as well. So it seems to be society wide. Yeah, I, I don't know much about that world, but I am starting to hear little rumblings that the Christian world is starting to fail men as well. Are you familiar with the Art of Manliness, uh, Brett McKay? Yes. So he wrote a book called Muscular Christianity, which is about a movement in Christianity in the first half of the 20th century that sort of sought to uh, defeminize what Christianity had become following the Industrial Revolution. So when the Industrial Revolution happened, men were taken out of the home and sent off to work in factories. So the home became the exclusive domain of women during the day. And of course, the pastor is not in the factory. The pastor pastor is in the village. And so the pastor's immediate uh, conversation during the day becomes with women. And so he be, so the pastors slowly begin redesigning Christian services to appeal to women and men become increasingly alienated from those feminized services. So there was a movement in the first half of the 20th century that sought to undo that and create a form of Christian worship that was suitable to men. And that even shows up in the form of, um, of hymns. There are two kinds of hymns. Uh, gosh, I'm, I'm going to mess up the term. It's not a hymn and a, uh, not a psalm, but um, where some forms of hymns are songs to Jesus, like Jesus, I love you. Those are the ones, sorry, the, the hymns to Jesus are the ones that appeal more to women because they're more about relationship. Then there are some kind of hymns that are songs about Jesus, which is Jesus and you are the righteous redeemer in this very hierarchical kind of way. And the hymns about Jesus are the ones that appeal to men. So these two different forms of worship and uh, what be- began in the late 19th century was more of a relational uh, form of worship. And what the muscular Christianity movement sought to bring back was a form of hierarchical kind of worship, which appealed to men. And so that's what that book is about, is sort of chronicling that sort of, I guess, decline and brief rise of Christianity back to be something that uh, would be appeal more to men. And then it, it sort of petered out. I think it was after the First World War or after the Great Depression or something like that. Uh, and But it seems to be making a form of resurgence in some parts of the Renaissance of men that I'm familiar with. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, tell me what you think about this, but I, I have this belief and you know, I, I don't have any particular special insight into societal level stuff. That's not really where I dwell, but <laughs> I have this belief that men are from the beginning, we've, we've 
try to be what women want. And I think that just comes out of number one, sexual selection, like peacocks have feathers because they're, they're trying to be what the, the peahens want. And I think there's versions of that for humanity too. And I think we just like women. And so we want to make women happy. And I think those are all healthy, good instincts. But what a guy really has to watch out for is that he doesn't lose his own values. He doesn't lose his own mission in the process of trying to be present for other people. Hi, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the conversation with Dr. Smith. This is just a quick reminder to follow me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Ren of Men. That's R-E-N-O-F-M-E-N, like Renaissance of Men, but shorter, Ren of Men. You can also find me on Twitter at Will underscore Ren of Men. And I'd like to say thanks to everyone who took a moment to leave a rating after my last podcast. I really appreciate it. If you haven't left a rating yet, it's pretty easy. You can just go over to the Apple Podcasts app and you can find the Renaissance of Men podcast. Click the five-star button, or if you have a minute, leave a written review, and that'll definitely help this podcast reach more men. I'd just like to say thanks to everyone who supported this podcast over the past few months. Some exciting things are up ahead. And as I'm recording this on Christmas Eve, I just wanted to take a moment to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Thanks so much, and let's get back to the conversation with Dr. Sean T. Smith. When you say that, it makes me think of Jack Donovan's book, The Way of Men, where he talks about women's selection of men generally follows men's selection of men. So men will do a sorting process amongst themselves to determine who is the fittest or the strongest based on the strength, courage, mastery, and honor as the tactical values, the eternal masculine values. So that men will do a sorting process amongst themselves for who best embodies those values. And the men who sort out towards the top of that uh, process are the men that women select for. So I see in that sort of a, a synthesis of what you're talking about, that we want to be the kind of men who women select but instead of trying to be that kind of man, better to be the kind of man who men select for, and out of that will come women. Yeah, I, I think that's he's right on with that. And I really like Jack Donovan. He's yeah. one of my favorite quotes came from him. I don't remember if it was in a book or a talk he did, but he said that masculinity is a camera looking for a nail in a house that's already been built, which <laughs> I, I think really, really kind of sums up the way a lot of guys feel about their place in the world. But it, what you just said about men selecting each other. Here's what so many women don't understand about men. And I I don't fault them for this because there's so much that that men don't understand about women. I think it's just sort of a natural thing. There's pieces that are mysterious to each other. And that's actually a beautiful thing. But they don't, I think, understand unless they put some effort into it that the way we select each other, the way we build our hierarchies is pretty friendly. Mm -hmm. Like We compete, but we cooperate at the same time unless we're at war with each other, which is a different story. When we're building our own hierarchies, we're competitive and we're cooperative. And those two things have to exist together. It can't be another way. And I think women tend to see men competing and they don't really get what you and I probably get, that this is kind of a fun, friendly process for the most part. Not always, but you know, sometimes you get some bloody noses. But for the most part, it's, it's kind of fun. Oh, I agree. And it took me years to understand that. I purposely opted out of being tested by other men because I was terrified of it. Uh, uh-huh. Because because I had some of those beliefs that we discussed kind of ingrained in me. And as I purged myself of shame and became more confident in myself as a man, I found myself stepping into more masculine and manly competition. And I guess you would say taking it less personally, being less afraid of it and actually coming to enjoy it. But it's taken me 
well past childhood and, and uh, teenage years and, and even early adulthood to get to a point where I feel that way. But I know exactly what you're talking about. And I was listening to a podcast yesterday about this, about when you see the two rams budding horns or you see the elks budding antlers or the gorillas fighting with each other, it may look violent, but it's actually, like you say, it's actually friendly. They're not actually trying to harm each other because that would be counterproductive is that the herd needs to be as right. big as it needs to be. They're actually using the tools they have to sort out amongst themselves who is the fittest and the strongest. They don't actually want to kill each other. And so in the, in the same token, like, you know, I would have thought, and I can still even inside myself see these beliefs kind of swimming around like, oh, there you are that some of the competition is actually mean-spirited in nature. But no, it's not intended to be that at all. It's actually meant to be friendly. And this is the unique way that men communicate and express themselves with each other, which is completely different from the way women communicate. Yeah, it's been said before that men will insult each other and not mean it, and women will compliment each other and not mean it. <laughs> That's right. And and uh, this, this came up in another podcast uh, of mine as well, where uh, when men like each other, they pick on each other. And uh, certainly I've seen that to be true over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's a great compliment when you meet somebody like you just made, maybe you go someplace like the 21 convention and you're kind of feeling your way around, you, you know, new relationships and then somebody busts your chops a little bit. This feels great because then you feel like, okay, I'm home. Somebody has accepted me here because they're, they're testing me a little bit. And it, you know, you start to feel alive and you start to feel more connected. And I suspect that with women, and that with men who have, against their own will, been feminized, that that's not the feeling that they get when somebody busts their balls a little bit. Yeah, no, I can speak for myself and say when when men would bust my balls, it was very much a feeling of being threatened. And without any sense uh -huh. of inner strength within myself, I had no way to push back on it. So I just, I withered and hid. And I went back to what was comfortable, which was the world of women. Which says to other guys, I, I don't really know what it says to other guys, it's kind of context dependent, but it's, it's basically saying, well, I, I don't want to play. And then wherever that leads, you know, I don't want to play then could lead to well, I guess we're not friends then, or, you know, I guess, I guess you're not one of us, or I, I don't know what it leads to in any given context, but it's not a great message to send anybody. No, it's definitely not. You mentioned there's no, there's no measuring that'll happen for these prisoners that are exposed to feminist ideals in, in the clinic. Now there's no measuring of the damage that'll, that'll take place. And when I look at the, uh, I like the phrase you used, I was feminized against my will, very much against my will. And that was a whole big thing that I had to go through to that to, to work through that just a, the feeling of really being violated with these ideas and i can't identify where they came from but certainly like i can go back and i can almost count the cost in terms of lost income lost achievement in my hobbies things that i was passionate about because no hobby is really pursued in a vacuum it's you know you have a creative community that you're a part of and i can look back at my various pursuits and i can say wow, it was because of these beliefs, which were deeply subconscious, that I just didn't show up to be part of the conversation or part of the competition because I didn't know how to handle competition because I was afraid, because I was inwardly weakened. And I look back and say, wow, I can, I can look back at the failures in my life or the ways that I failed and, and tie them directly to these beliefs. Yeah, it's, it's so sad, but at least you found out before you're on your deathbed. So good. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what gives me such an intense passion to help other men discover this because I think I, I'm, I know I'm not alone, especially, you know, having spent so much time in San Francisco, I know I'm not alone because there are so many men that are cut off from their own, their own sense of power. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because I have benefited so greatly from therapy 
from psychotherapy. That was kind of the beginning of, of my journey uh, into the depths of my psyche, I guess you might say. Although the, the therapist I saw, Jamie, was from a very different tradition, more integral therapy um, from the California Institute of Integral Studies in, in San Francisco, which is sort of more my bent and it's less... Um, it's probably less uh, nuts and bolts as, as you describe. It's just a different approach. It greatly benefited me, but I found there's a lot of resistance in men to wanting to participate in psychotherapy, which I find is sort of contradictory because you have these really strong guys who go charging, for example, into the most dangerous situations in the world physically, but they're terrible, terrified to go within. And so one of my uh, goals in talking to you, I suppose you'd say, is I want to help. I want to sort of tease out how we can get more men to get more comfortable with going into their inner lives and finding out who they are. And I thought that you might be a great guy to speak to about that. Well, yeah, that's societal level stuff again that I'm not real well versed <laughs> in. But I think that men having tribes, to use a Jack Donovan turn of the phrase, that men having a tribe is the first step. Like, whether you're going to look inward or not, you got to have some guys in your life that are that will give you the truth that will bust your chops a little bit that will you know, just be someone to hang out and, and shoot the shit with. Um, sorry, I'm cursing a lot on your show. I don't that's, know if that's it's totally fine. Okay. So guy and guys used to do this. I'm, I'm not so convinced that guys are really averse to looking inward because now we have the internet and the internet has really, that's what allowed for the manosphere or the Renaissance of men to take place. I think because it allowed men in different geographic locations to have very intense, direct conversations. And there's been some real upsides to that. I think the same stuff used to happen on bar stools and on the golf course and, and in the bowling alley. It, mm -hmm. But it was obviously more atomized and, and isolated. And, and so it, it didn't really go anywhere because two guys having a conversation about their wives on the golf course, which they probably aren't doing very directly. And there's probably a lot of joking and there's probably a lot of get your shit together kind of messaging, which you, you still, you still see among men, but that conversation ends there and, and it doesn't go forward. But then the, the internet comes along and that conversation no longer ends right there. And now you have people building tribes and communities and conversations. And, and that's a wonderful aspect of the internet. I completely agree. And that's the essence of the, the Renaissance of men is this conversation, this historical moment that's been proceeding for the past four decades. And that has was sort of shamed out, I guess you might say, of the of the public dialogue, went underground into spaces that at the time couldn't really be censored or monitored like they can today. And now as the conversation is being censored and monitored, men are taking it into the real world and saying, we're just going to do our thing and, you know, try and stop us, try and stop us from getting fit, try and stop us from, you know, reading stoicism, try and stop us from building tribes and, and communities in the real world. That's the directions that I see things heading now. I hope so. And I, I want to believe that information exchange has that quality where the more you try to suppress it, the more intriguing it becomes to people, the more they seek it out. But beyond even information, like some of the communities that I'm part of, which again, this could be a, a function of the bubble nature of the world, but the men have, they share information, but it's almost cursory at this point. So we've all ascertained that we share a common set of values. And now we go out in our lives and we seek to express those values in fitness and in finance and fashion and style and in relationship and in cleaning our rooms, as Jordan Peterson would say. And we check in with each other, but I don't think we're sharing information in the same way as like, for example, during the early days of the, the red pill days on the, on the Reddit forums, where it was this constant research group that was uh, particularly around pickup as well, 
uh, in uh, some of those communities that they were sharing all this information about things that worked and that out of pickup yeah. is where the red pill came from. I don't see that happening so much anymore. It's now, okay, take what you've learned. This place may no longer be safe as it was a couple of years ago. Take it out into the world and begin building. And I can, I can say without a doubt that that is real. Good. I, I hope it's true. I want to see men out there building their worlds and making their dent in the universe. I do too. And I, I seek to be part of that. And I, I think part of that also that is really exciting is to see all the ways as we're talking about in clinics and also in the APA guidelines and they show up in movies as well, where men are beginning to feel that this modern world is actually kind of antithetical to them. Uh, not just the degree of comfort that it provides and how numbing uh, that comfort can be, but also that it's there are actually some ideological weapons trained on them specifically. And so they're sort of beginning to abandon it in very big and small ways. And so I, I see that as sort of like a jumping ship, like mm, we're going to get out of this situation and start building our own communities because this global community no longer serves us. Yeah. Well, this this conversation right here might be an example of breaking out of that idea, those ideological constraints. I think so. I love that phrase that you just used. The, how did you say it? That comfort is numbing. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful phrase because it is. That's, that's so true that for it's especially true for men, but it might be true for just human beings in general that comfort leads to discontent and it leads to just a numbing of your experience. Oh, for sure. And, and I think also for millions of years as beings to the degree that we're evolved beings on the planet, our lives were defined by struggle struggle to eat, struggle to survive, struggle to reproduce. That's in our DNA. That's in every other living creature on earth. And humans seem to be the one creature that perversely seeks to remove any amount of discomfort. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But when you take it too far, we become disconnected from our essential animal nature, which is such an important source of power for us. So we're sort of dealing with these two natures, their need for discomfort and our longing for comfort to relieve the discomfort. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there 100%. And I'm, I'm thinking about the manosphere and that there, there are so many little factions in the yeah. manosphere, big factions, I guess, not, not little factions, major factions. But I think all of them start out from a good place. And I think all of them gone too far can start to resemble a cult or, or an ideology of their own. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, and that's true of anything. That's mm-hmm. not just true of the, the manosphere. That's true of any group of people getting together and agreeing with each other, which is what any online community is. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the dangers of that is when men try to eliminate discomfort altogether, like MGTOW taken to the extreme is an attempt to just escape all possible danger with women. Well, okay, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not mad at somebody who makes that choice, but you're giving up so much in the process. And it's, just, it's, not, it's not a trade that I'm willing to make to go, to go that far in any direction. No, me either. And I think I was actually talking with someone about this. MGTOW was not something that ever appealed to me in terms of its current manifestation, which is seeking to eliminate all risk with regard to women, which you'll never do except by abandoning them completely, which I don't think is the solution. But the guy I was talking to was part of the early MGTOW movement, and he had since left because he had become happy in his life and didn't need to follow the forms online anymore. And then he went back to the forms that he had been a part of, and he's like, oh, wow, it's changed. So I think the MGTOW movement probably originally was, if I had to summarize what I imagine its message might be, sort of detach yourself from the need for women's approval and seek your own yes. approval first. And I think that yes. idea got corrupted. Yeah, the, the, it's in the name, go your own way. And 
that can mean a million things to a million different people. But what it means to me is you do what you're going to do in the world. And then whoever wants to follow along can follow along or not. It's fine. You, but you do your thing. And that's really, you know, if, if men want to have success with women, not that that's the primary goal in life, but if you want to have success in women, that's one of the most important things you can do is go your own way and be much less invested in approval. Do you actually encounter men with sort of MGTOW ideas in, in your practice or in your everyday life? Or was this, you mentioned at the start that you had a conversation with someone about it, but do you actually, does it actually show up? Actually, that's an interesting question because I know a couple of guys just personally who are clearly MGTOW because they, they're, they're not married. They're making lots of money. They're just sort of doing their own thing They're And they're enjoying life and, and, they would fit, I think, some kind of definition of MGTOW, but they don't call themselves MGTOW. They don't make any noise about it. They're just literally going their own way and going their own way includes not talking about going their own way. They're just doing what they're doing. They're not married or anything like that. It just doesn't seem to be an interest no. of theirs. Okay. Yeah. They're not married. I, I don't know. I've never asked them about it. So, and I can think of two guys. I've never asked them their stance on women. And I know that, you know, one of them gets around quite a bit, mm. but He's not going to get married. He's never going to get married, have kids. Yeah, so it's an interesting thing that really going your own way includes not talking about going your own way. But I, I understand. And again, I'm, I, I sound like I'm being critical of MGTOWs. I'm not because I think they, I understand where they're coming from. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting thing that can be taken too far like anything. Well, that's one of the things of the Renaissance of Men is that you've mentioned that the factions, but I also acknowledge and see all the factions that are part of this global movement of men. And I encapsulate them all in a singular, a singular movement of the Renaissance. They may not all agree with each other. They may not all like each other, but they all serve a function. And I think MGTOW serves a very, very important function for some, oh, yes. you know, as a world yeah. to, to detach themselves. And it sounds like you've, you've seen some of that. I love the existence of MGTOW because it sends a little message that Hey, there are some of us who are not going to play along with this bullshit. So, you know, just you're you're on notice. Some of us are leaving, and more of us may leave. And I think that that's a really important message for society, whatever that is, to get in response to the the overtaking of feminist ideology. That okay, you can you can be as ideological as you want, but there is going to be a price for it at some point. That sounds ominous and threatening. I'm not threatening anybody, but what I'm saying is you know, <laughs> clearly not threatening anybody. But what I'm saying is that there may be a trade-off to you becoming purely ideological, and the trade-off might may be that there will be fewer of us men to serve you. And I think that's probably part of the gamble is that if you can shame enough men into some form of servitude, maybe you'll be able to have them around when you need them. But more men are kind of waking up to what's going on. It's like, mm, I'm not going to be this sort of, this is certainly my story. It's like, I'm not going to be your servant forever. It's not that I don't believe in service. It's not that I don't believe in those things. In fact, I believe that service is a higher form of calling than I think the rational mind has the ability to comprehend sometimes. Mm -hmm. But certainly there's a difference between service and servitude. And yes. learning to, to thread that needle, I think is important. Yes, it is. And I, I, maybe that's one of the most important things that a guy needs to come to terms with in his, in his early adulthood is sorting that out, service versus servitude and serving on your own terms and choosing who you allow into your world versus being uh, recruited against your will or silently or, or uh, being taught that you need to act as if you're you're broken because you're a man, and therefore that puts you in the position of serving women in a way that you never really signed up for. 
for the men who are listening that sort of are beginning or have already identified some of these ideas within themselves, what sort of advice would you give them for how to begin unwinding them? Service versus servitude? Or yeah, service versus servitude. Sure. Let's start there. Okay. Well, or just finding your purpose in life. And maybe it's, maybe it's a broader question. I would say that uh, for so many guys like me in my twenties, I was all about trying to, to meet women and, and succeed with women and that's not, that wasn't my only goal, but it was far too prominent of a goal for me. And I would say that uh, when you're a young man and it's the hardest thing, the hardest thing to do when you're a young man is turn away from women, because that's when it, when you're a young man in your twenties and thirties, that's when they're most compelling, mm. maybe, maybe even more so than when you're in your teens, but to be able and willing to set aside and embrace the discomfort of setting aside, looking for approval and trying things in the world, going places, doing things and seeing if you can zero in on what your purpose is. Cause this is one of the things that like the APA could be talking about things like this instead of uh, just shaming men for being men. They could talk about the fact that being a 20 to 25 year old guy kind of sucks in a lot of ways because a lot is expected of you at the same time in your life when you don't know what the hell you're doing, you know, why you're here for most of you. Now, some guys are really lucky and they know from from childhood, what they want to do when they grow up. And they're just on that path and they've got the environment and the people around them that will help them stay on that path. And, but that's not most of us. Most of us are floundering for a while. Mm-hmm. And when you're floundering, that's when you're really at risk of making uh, decisions that can come back to haunt you, like getting married too early, getting married to the wrong person. And so I think one of the things that guys can do when they're in their twenties is just embrace the fact that I don't know what the hell I'm doing yet, but I know that if I move in this direction, it feels better than where I'm standing right now. So I'm going to move in this direction. I'm going to try this thing. This thing may not be what I end up doing, but I'll get something from it and it'll move me closer to where I'm ultimately going to try to get to. I'm thinking of, uh, you were talking about Alexander Dumas' novel and Find the Woman. As you're describing what men should be doing in their early 20s, trying new things, I immediately thought of that because there's nothing that can take a man off his path or off of his own desires of what feels what feels good in terms of his own personal development faster than a woman, especially at that age, or several women, I suppose. Yeah, and and you, I, I don't know about you, but I see it all the time. I see young guys that are kind of lost, not hopelessly lost, not like living on the streets and, and their lives are falling apart, but just lost in the sense that they don't really know what they want to be doing. And so a woman comes along and she provides a purpose and then she becomes his purpose. Well, it's not going to work out well for either one of them. She, it's not going to work out well for him because he's going to have an, an empty feeling at some point that there was something that he could have been doing with that time. If she's a healthy person, she doesn't want to be his purpose. She wants him to have his own purpose. That's, that's what healthy humans want for, for each other. I'm thinking about your book, The Tactical Guide to Women, which I haven't read. It's normally my practice to read the books of the guests before I speak to them, but uh, I've listened to so many of your videos and I felt that there was a, a sort of urgency in speaking with you. But I wonder if you cover some of these topics in your book. Yeah, well, The Tactical Guide to Women is uh, its the most misogynistic sounding name for, for a book <laughs> that, I could, that I could come up with, but it's not misogynistic at all. It's no, about how to so. build good relationships with women. And it's written in... It, divided up into three parts. The last two parts are about looking for the qualities in women that are able to succeed in relationships and how to identify shared values and how to identify good character. The first third of the book is about you getting yourself together because the, the, 
the second two thirds, the rest of the book is completely irrelevant if you don't have some sense of what you're doing with your life. So yeah, it is relevant to what we're talking about now is kind of in the book. Yeah. And what is the practical guide to men, the companion book that you wrote for women? Yeah, I wrote that long enough ago and I, I don't think about it very much that I don't think I can speak intelligently about it because <laughs> I, I tend not to revisit things that I've written, except for the tactical guide to women. That one's my baby and um, I'll, I'll be writing more about that. But the, the practical guide to men it was a companion book for women. And it's essentially the book that I would want my daughter to read, although she's not going to read it because I'm her dad. And, you know, what a, <laughs> maybe she will. I don't know. She's, she's a really um, inquisitive kid. But it was the book I would want my daughter to read before she starts dating men. It's, it's, again, it's about how to find those shared values. It's about what makes a high-functioning man because you know, sort of what we're talking about here, that what looks like a high-functioning man, according to society, is a man who's on board with the feminist version mm -hmm. of what a man should be. But that's actually not what's going to succeed very well in a relationship. And I, I, you know, the book is not about tearing down feminism, but it's about um, what, what are the qualities of men who actually are able to succeed in relationships, and here's how you look for them. Well, I think this is really valuable because along with the renaissance of men, I've actually recently managed to tap into what appears to be a renaissance of women. And this is very exciting that there seem to be, as men are rediscovering masculinity on their own terms, it seems that women are rediscovering femininity on their own terms. I put on Instagram a couple of days ago that the only thing more glorious in the renaissance of men will be the renaissance of women. Uh, and I see these two processes as synergistic and as mutually influencing. And it sounds like it's something that you're perhaps even living through with, with your family as well. Yeah, why don't we talk about this much with my family? We kind of... Mm. Well, you're living yeah. it. Yeah, we're, we're just living it. I think I'm a pretty masculine guy, and I think my wife is a pretty feminine woman, and it's, it's fun. It's fun to be masculine. Mm. And I would think that if you're a woman, it would be fun to be feminine. And I don't know why, you know, how, well, how we got here is how we got here, but it uh, seems like there might be some benefit to getting back to embracing the dichotomy of humanity because we work so well together that mm -hmm. for whatever reason we decided that we needed to throw it out for a little while and we all need to be the same and there's you know there's not much advantage in men and women being the same i don't think no i don't think it serves either men or women but i, th I think we probably threw it out to some extent in our quest to remove discomfort because men being fully masculine and women being fully feminine there's some natural tension in that in that relationship which again, the creation story, uh, the fall, lays out pretty well in God's curse. Men will work and toil over the fields and suffer to some extent. Men will rule over women and your desire will be for your husband, which is not about sexual desire, but it's about some sort of resentment that you'll always want your, your husband's place in, in the hierarchy. But there's tension in that because men need to serve God, women need to serve men, although not in the ways that that word is usually meant. But there's tension in that dynamic because the man's natural inclination you know, will be to become domineering out of his own uh, suffering and the woman's natural inclination will be to become domineering or take the man's place uh, out of her own inclination. And that tension needs to be held. And I think there was a point in time where we decided that, uh, not you and I, obviously, but society decided we wanted to try and eliminate that natural tension, which caused suffering. And we set about doing it and discovered that we were all miserable. And now we're sort of trying to rediscover some of these ideas, but hold the tension in a more integrated kind of fashion is the way I might describe it. I think that's a very poetic and apt way to describe it, that, that eliminating the tension. Well, thank you, because I'm, I'm not married. And uh, so these are all these are all hypotheticals for me.
Well, <laughs> I, I, I like what you're saying. I have a friend, Robert Glover, who wrote a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. Mm-hmm. It's a, actually a pretty famous book. Oh, yeah. You might have read it. Everybody's I, read it. I did read it, yeah. He talks a lot lately. He's really been looking at this question of positive tension between men and women. And he's going to have some stuff coming out that's going to be really fun to read about allowing this tension to exist and enjoying it. Is this something that, that you kind of have found to be true in your life currently? Because I think, uh, particularly as a, as a married man with children, the message that I was always given is that marriage is the death of joy. Uh, and no. I, don't, I don't necessarily believe that, but no. you have to be able to exist in this tension. And that's one of the most interesting things of the Renaissance of men is this turning back to family and how men can actually find joy in family, which is something that I believe. So it sounds like something that you're living in a way. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, I, I feel like I've been dunking on the manosphere for the last hour, and, and I, I really don't mean to be. One of the great lessons that comes out of the manosphere and, and various factions within the manosphere is, is allowing for that tension, and that's a wonderful message for men to be hearing. Ten, the tension in marriage, not just in courtship. Yeah, the tension between men and women, allowing a little tension to exist, and of course, like everything in the manosphere, can be taken way too far. But the basic message is, I think what you're saying is, let's not be afraid of the tension that exists between men and women. It's actually a beautiful thing. Mm, I like that because it, 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 it is a beautiful thing. And in the quest to resolve tension permanently and forever, I think we end up creating a bit more suffering than I think we realize at the time. Yes. And, and that is, you know, I mentioned earlier, I work with, worked with anxiety disorders for a long time, not so much anymore, but that's a fundamental principle of how anxiety disorders develop. It's when you start trading the short-term relief for for the long-term discomfort or vice versa. You don't want to experience a discomfort right now. And so you create longer-term discomfort by going for the short-term relief. And that's how people end up with things like obsessive compulsive disorder and agoraphobia and all kinds of things. And it's a very natural thing to do. It's very intuitive to try to eliminate the immediate discomfort and in so many ways, that's a useful thing. But there are these situations like with anxiety, like with uh, gender relations, where it's not always the best approach to eliminate the immediate discomfort. I'm reading Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life right now. And I think rule number six or seven is pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. And uh, I don't know, have you have you read the book? Yeah. Uh, I've just finished that chapter this morning and I just found it this moving and symphonic overview expressed in his own unique way of something that you're talking about is to delay short-term gratification for something longer and more meaningful. Yes. And, and that um, one of the most successful schools of treatment for anxiety disorders uses precisely that recipe that we're not going to be driven by anxiety, that we're going to be driven by our values. And it's not going to be comfortable all the time, but in the long run, it's going to be much more successful. And we won't be locked in our in our bathroom because we're afraid of the world. Uh, which which school is that in particular? Behaviorism, and in particular, acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, it, it's a very effective treatment for anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the whole foundation of it. Values over comfort. I'm curious, since you mentioned behaviorism in the school, I really wanted to ask you about your background, particularly how you found your way. You said in the same talk that you grew up at a truck stop. I don't know if that was a joke, but uh, it didn't sound entirely like a joke. I'm curious how you found your way from growing up at a truck stop into being a a psychotherapist and and a coach and working in prisons. Like, What was that journey like? That's not a joke at all. Like, There's a place called, it's it's a tile store now, but there's a place (laughs) north of Denver where the refineries were. It was called Larry's Lounge. And my dad owned it. And that's where I spent 
my formative years, nights and weekends. And it was a wonderful experience, but I was always inquisitive and I was always in particular inquisitive about human relations. I don't know why, but I just, I was the kid that would stay up late at night listening to the radio, trying to find conversations about relationships and so forth, just because I was intrigued by it and politics and so forth. And so growing up in a truck stop, I got to see lots of people fighting and people marrying and people smooching in the corner when they were completely mismatched. And I got to see lots of train wrecks. I got to see lots of successes. And it was all way over my head when I was eight, nine, 10 years old. Well, I guess he bought it when I was nine. So nine, 10, 11 years old. It was way over my head, but I was really fascinated by all of these adult interactions that were going on around me. And it just started me down the path of being curious in particular about violence, I started off very interested in violence prevention because my father was very good at that. It was when we first bought the place, it was a little bit rough. And he turned it around partly by being incredibly adept at handling people when they're starting to fly off the handle. So I got really intrigued by that. But then I was also intrigued by just the just all the intrigue around. It was, it was like living in a soap opera. And so anyway, that, that's what took me down the path of psychology. But how did you discover psychotherapy in particular? Because there are lots of people that end up being interested in research psychology, but they don't necessarily take it into one-on-one behavioral transformation, I suppose you might say, wherever that transformation comes from. Yeah, I was just never interested in the research side of the field. I was interested in problem solving. And I think that's because I saw my father doing a lot of problem solving as as the owner of the place. And so you've been you've been a therapist for 10, 20 years, something like that, I think you said? I've been in private practice for about 15 years now. And it took me a long time to get to grad school because I didn't have the money or really the means or the path. I didn't know anybody who'd ever done anything like that. So I, there was a lot of time between me finishing college and, and trying to figure out how to get into grad school, probably about a decade there. So during that decade, I was working in drunk tanks, residential treatment facilities and all, all kinds of jobs. And that was when you were kind of learning the, I guess, the ground level techniques that you then carried forward into graduate school? Yeah, to some degree. But in grad school, I went to a, a clinically based program. It was a PsyD program, which is pure clinical work. There's, there's not much research going on. And so I learned just a whole new set of skills in graduate school. Yeah, just, just an entire new set of skills, which have been proved to be pretty useful. I guess my last question is, what advice do you have for men that are seeking to pursue psychotherapy either professionally or for themselves because maybe they feel a call to understand their inner lives a bit better or unwind their own anxiety, but that are hesitant to really make a phone call or don't even know where to start. Just to get started, don't think of it as a daunting, overwhelming task that I'm going to be doing therapy. Just think of it as break it down and break it down to the first thing I'm going to do is do a little research and see who's around here that I might actually be able to talk to. And then make the call and, and leave it at that. You're going to make the call and then maybe it leads to something, maybe it doesn't, but it's easy enough to make a call. It's sort of like when you're, when you're going to go to the gym, you don't really want to go to the gym. You don't focus on what you're going to be doing at the gym. You focus on right now, I'm just going to get my shoes on. And after I get my shoes on, then I'm going to get my ass out into the car or whatever. And you, know, you just take it step by step. So that's one way to get started. But then unfortunately, guys really need to be careful about finding someone who isn't steeped in ideology. Mm. So one way to do that is to to look around online and see who's who's there and just sort of get a feel for who's in your neighborhood that you might talk to. But then also you can make the call and you can ask some questions. You can ask, like one of my favorite questions right now is sort of a blessing that came out of the APA's guidelines for boys and men is you can now use that as a vetting tool for therapists. You can call somebody up and say, hey, I heard about these guidelines for working with boys and men. What do you think about those? And 
most people are going to say, I, I don't really know much about them. But if you get someone who says, oh, I think they're great, you know, mm-hmm. we really need change or so forth, then that person, you just politely say, okay, thank you and hang up and, and move on to the next person. Ideally, what you'd want to hear to that question is, well, they're a mixed bag. There are some good things about it and there are some bad things about it. And let me, I'll spend a minute telling you what I think about it. But um, that, that's one of the best things that came out of those guidelines is the ability to use them as a vetting tool. Thank you for that, because I, I encounter a lot of men that I recommend psychotherapy to, but I don't know how to guide them around that particular bramble bush. That's a problem. You don't want anybody who's pushing any kind of ideology. The relationship is supposed to be about you and you getting to where you want to get to, not about them telling you what, how they think the world works. And I usually think you can suss some of that out from a particular practitioner's website, but it may not be yeah. entirely possible anymore. Yeah, you can get an impression of people. Yeah, you, you do need to dig a little bit. So where can people go to learn more about you and what you do? I have a website called DocSmith.co, and I'm on Twitter at Iron Shrink. Well, thank you so much. It's been fascinating and stimulating conversation. I, I really appreciate all your insight and all these subjects that are so important to me and I know are so important to many men. Well, I learned some stuff today, so thank you all. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.